Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, amen, amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you please take them out? And I'm going to ask that you go to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew. It is the first book in the New Testament, and it's um, uh, one of the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 21, as uh, today and next Sunday we are going to uh, take a break take a two-week break from our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. And um, over the next two weeks, we want to talk about Jesus and what he has, what he has done uh, for us. And today, um, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Scripture will also be um, on the screen uh, behind me as well. But um, today is in known in, in the world of Christianity, today is known as the beginning of of Holy Week. Uh, now, what is Holy Week? Holy Week is when, is when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for that final time on a Sunday, um, and by the following week, on sun, the following Sunday, um, it will be the day that we celebrate Resurrection or Resurrection Day. And one of the great things I love about Holy Week is this, is that Christians all throughout the world no matter the uh, denomination, no matter your affiliation, no matter uh, the race, language, no matter your doctrine, all Christians around the world are brought together in unity during this Holy Week. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's ever been a moment in the world's history when we need to be unified, it is right now. Amen? We need to be unified, and we need to be brought together, and Holy Week is that week that can bring Christians together because they are in agreement what took place during the Holy Week. And we're also in agreement that Holy Week, uh, this week that we celebrate currently, um, it is central uh, to our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you were to look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would, you would see that 40% of the content in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 40% of the content all relate back to the last eight, seven days of Jesus' life here on this earth. They spend a great amount of time letting us know what Jesus did on those last few days. And so if we were to uh, combine all of the Gospels together, uh, we can get a chronology of what took place on Jesus' last uh, week. So let me just share this with you briefly to kind of set the stage for where we're going this morning. Um, in Holy Week, on the Saturday of Holy Week, um, Jesus went into a village called Bethany. And there in the village of Bethany, he had dinner with Lazarus, whom he had recently raised from the dead. He has dinner with Lazarus and uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, that was on Saturday. Then on Sunday of Holy Week, which is today, uh, on that Sunday of Holy Week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of, of a donkey, and, we, and we're going to read this text here in a few moments, but, but Jesus enters into the holy city, and it is a triumphal uh, entry. 
On Monday, tomorrow on Monday, uh, Jesus, he, he left Jerusalem on Sunday evening, goes back to Bethany, then he comes back to Jerusalem, and on the way back to Jerusalem on Monday of Holy Week, he curses a barren fig tree. One of the interesting, more interesting curses that Jesus uh, ever placed uh, upon uh, during his lifetime. Rather interesting, but that's what took place on Monday. On Tuesday, on Tuesday of Holy Week, it is the last public appearance of Jesus. Where he's spending time in the temple, where he is, he is trying to convince people that he is the Messiah. But is the last of public preaching in Jerusalem. At the end of Tuesday, Jesus takes his disciples and they go all the way to the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus gives what the Gospel John says. He gives what's called the Olivet Discourse. About four or five chapters in the book of John uh, shares with us what Jesus told his disciples on the Mount of Olives on that uh, Tuesday of Holy Week. On Wednesday, Jesus rested. Now, why do you think he rested? Because on Thursday, which some believers know it as Monday, Thursday, Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and there he holds Passover with his disciples, the last Passover. And if you remember, on that Thursday evening, what takes place? Jesus is arrested. He is rested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is arrested, he is beaten, and he is tried. And then on Friday morning of this coming week, Jesus is crucified. He's crucified, and the world goes silent. Saturday of Holy Week, weeping, the disciples running away, trying to figure out what just happened. Jesus is dead. And all that we had ever lived for and hoped for, it is gone. But Sunday. But on Sunday morning, Jesus breaks through the tomb. Jesus arises from the dead, and we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. So all of this takes place within a week's of time. Now, what's 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 great about this week is we know why Jesus came, and we will learn today the beginnings of why Jesus came and what the implication is for our lives today. Now, in honor of Holy Week, on um, this coming Friday, April the 2nd, we will be having Lord's Supper. We are going to be having communion. But we'll be having communion, um, and it will be broadcast over 104.1 The Wave at 6 p.m. From 6 to 6.30 p.m., you are invited to join us at 104.1 The Wave, where I will explain the Passover, and I will lead you through taking the Passover. So Friday, get your bread and your, and your juice ready, or you can come by the church office and pick up everybody's favorite all-in-one communion cups. Everybody with me? We have plenty of them. But come by this week, we can get those to you, all right? Um, so uh, the, the uh, Lord's Supper will be on 104.1 way of the wave, and I'm going to try to get that as a podcast as well on our website so that you can follow along if you cannot join us at that time. But we want to take a few moments this week to be thankful for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross at Calvary. Amen? Well, let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and let's begin in verse number 1, and it reads, 
when they had approached Jerusalem, they being Jesus and the disciples, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, that Jesus sent two disciples. Let's stop there for just a second, and let's understand the landscape. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east. Bethany and Bethpage are on the east. They are near the Mount of Olives. And so when Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem that day, he is going to enter into Jerusalem from the east. He's going to come down from the Mount of Olives, go down a steep valley called the Kidron Valley, and he's going to work his way back up unto the Temple Mount, and he is going to enter into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that thought in just a few moments. When they had approached Jerusalem, when they had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, a colt a goat with her, untie them, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And I love verse number six. And the disciples went out and did just as Jesus had instructed them. Outside verse number six, write the words, obedience. Obedience is always the right thing to do. Verse 7, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on their coats. Verse 8, and most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches, the palm branches, from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now picture this crowd. It's a large crowd. And, and some scholars believe that this is kind of a, a call and response moment between the crowd. Like the people on the left would say, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. And people on the right would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you kind of have this, this call and responses and this back and forth moment. It is an exciting, thrilling moment. And look at verse 10. And when he had entered Jerusalem, how did he enter Jerusalem? Through the eastern gate, from the east. When he had entered Jerusalem, I love this, all the city was, what does your word say? Stirred. They were stirred, and they asked this question, who is this? And the crowds responded by saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, that is our text this morning that we are going to look at for the next three hours this morning. <laughs> Praise God. I love that amen right there. So here's what's interesting about the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah prophesied this some 500 years before Christ physically appeared on the earth. Zechariah, he knows Daniel. He knows the book of Esther. He knows Ezekiel. He knows Isaiah. And he comes, and all of these other prophets, they all come together in agreement. And Zechariah says, listen, your king is coming. He's saying, listen, Jewish people, listen, your king is coming. I promise you your king is coming. And here's what your king is going to look like. He is going to be humble. 
He's not going to come to overthrow the government. Boy, our world needs to hear that today, doesn't it? The prophet Zechariah says, your king is coming. He's going to be humble. He's not going to come like you think he ought to come by riding on a white stallion. No, instead, he is going to come, and he is going to ride on a donkey. In other words, Zechariah says, you need to look for your king, and here's a sign. When you see your king coming into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, he is the rightful king. Jesus is the king. Now, I know that some of you could say, you know, pastor, that's just, that's just two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. That, that's, that's two. I, I don't know if I'm really convinced about that, that, yeah, that's just two passages of Scripture that you pulled out. Well, that's fair. But I do want to let you know that the entire Old Testament points to one great truth, that the king is coming. The great truth of the Old Testament is this. The king is coming. You look at the life of Moses. Moses who's known as a deliverer. Moses says the king is coming. He's coming. A deliverer greater than me. He's coming. David said he's coming and he's going to sit on my throne. Isaiah said he's coming. He will come by a virgin. The book of Jeremiah said he's coming. Daniel, we looked at Daniel at the end of last year, and in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesies the moment that the king will enter into Jerusalem, and, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and you can calculate it to Palm Sunday. Micah said he's coming. Zechariah said he's coming. Malachi said he's coming. Listen, all the prophets in the Old Testament point to one great truth. The king is coming, and when he comes, he's going to be riding on the back of a donkey. So when, they are, when the Jewish people are there and they're watching this, they should know that he is the rightful king. Well, turn over to Genesis chapter 49. Turn over to Genesis chapter 49. Let me show you another prophecy about the king and the donkey. Genesis chapter 49, I believe this is one of the most overlooked uh, prophecies about the king coming or coming on a donkey or being uh, connected to a donkey. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, right? And remember, we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who we serve. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of his sons' name is Judah. Now look at verse 10 through 11, Genesis chapter 49, and Jacob is going to bless Judah, and watch what he says to him. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is what a king holds. Whoever holds the scepter, he is the king. So Jacob says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from you. Somebody in your kin is going to have the scepter. And now the ruler's staff, uh, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What Jacob is saying is this, from the tribe of Judah, the scepter will remain in the tribe of Judah until worship takes place. Worship of all the peoples. Now look at verse 11 and look at the connection made from Jacob in Genesis 49. He Whoever this ruler is, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt 
to the choice vine. Do you see it? Very early on, even in the book of Genesis, God says, listen, your king, King Jesus that we know, King Jesus, he will come and he will be connected to a donkey and, a, and its foal. Meaning this, when you see, when you see this person get on the back of a donkey and enter into Jerusalem, you need to know this. He and he alone is the rightful king. Amen? Jesus is the rightful king. So when you turn back to Matthew chapter 21 and you see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, he's on this donkey. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And when he rides into Jerusalem, he is telling everybody, I am that king. There's no mistake. He has not made a mistake. Jesus is the king. I want you to write this down. Number two, Jesus is the victorious king. Not only is he the rightful king, he is also the victorious king. Look with me in Matthew chapter 21, verse number eight, and look at what happens in this text. I, I, I love this, verse number eight. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting palm branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. I think we don't understand as believers or as Americans or as Gentiles um, what the importance of palm branches, um, what they really are. What's the importance of a palm branch? So when I read this text, I say, why did they lay down palm branches? Why did they do this? Well, in that culture, a palm branch, whenever you laid it down, or you waved it, it was a sign of joy, it was a sign of celebration, but it was also a sign of victory. Meaning this, whenever you would wave a palm branch in front of the king, it means this, you have already achieved victory. Meaning, I don't hope there's victory. No, I lay these down because I believe you have brought us victory. So when they lay these branches down, you've got to picture this in your mind. When they lay these palm branches down, they're saying, Jesus, not only are you the rightful king, you are also the victorious king. Meaning you have already won and sin has already been defeated. And it's kind of hard for us to comprehend this, but let me put it in a way for us to, help to maybe to understand. We do something very similar today in our culture. Whenever, a, whenever an NFL team wins the Super Bowl, what does the city do for that team? Say they throw them a parade. They throw them a parade. And everybody gathers around and they celebrate. And they celebrate. And they sing, we are the champions. Because you have defeated everybody. You have already won the victory. So when, the, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's walking down the road. They are waving the palm branches. They are saying this, this is the man and this is the day. Now why would they say that? Why would they say that and why could they say that with all authority? Well, go to the book of Ezekiel. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Let me show this to you. This isn't going to be on the screen, but go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Are y'all with me this morning? Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Let me show you this. This is fascinating. Ezekiel chapter 11, look at verse number 23. Now remember, 
From which direction is Jesus coming from? He's coming from what direction? Say the east. East. He's going to enter into Jerusalem through what gate? Say the eastern gate. Watch this. And this is what makes him the victorious king. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel has been given a vision. Actually, it begins in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Ezekiel is given a vision. And in the vision, he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the Holy of Holies. You remember in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies. Remember? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, because Israel has continually rejected uh, God and they want to do it their own ways, Ezekiel has this vision that says, the Spirit of God lifted out of the Holy of Holies. Look at this. Look at verse number 23 of Ezekiel chapter 11, and it reads, And the glory of the Lord, that's the Spirit of, the God, of God, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is what? East of the city. What's east of the city? That's called the Mount of Olives. From which direction is Jesus coming from? East. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. Are you getting the picture? Now turn over to Ezekiel chapter 43. This ought to make the hair stand up on the back of your head if you have any hair. Look at this. So Ezekiel sees this vision of the spirit of the living God has lifted out of the holy of holies and it has departed and it has departed um, and is now east of the city, meaning it is out. Now look at Ezekiel chapter 43, uh, verses 1 through 2. He's received another vision and it's a vision of the spirit of God returning to the temple and returning to Jerusalem. Verse 43, excuse me, chapter 43, verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the what? East, that's the eastern gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. You see it? Do you see it? He gets a vision. He gets a vision. The Spirit has left in Ezekiel 10 and 11. It's gone, and it's gone towards the Mount of Olives. And then in chapter 43, he receives another vision. It says, but wait a minute. I, I, I see the Spirit of God. I see the Spirit of the Lord coming, and I see him coming, and he's coming from the east. Now look at chapter 44, one chapter over, one chapter over, verses 1 through 2. He says, and then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east. And it was shut, and the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. Why? For the Lord God of Israel has what? Has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Meaning this, the spirit of the living God has come from the east. He's come from the Mount of Olives. He's come down the Kidron Valley. He's walked back up into the temple and he walks through the eastern gate. And when that person, that king, walks through the eastern gate, the spirit of the living God, it says this, and that gate shall be shut. Why? Because he's the king. Nobody else can enter through the eastern gate. Nobody else can come through the eastern gate. Why? Because Jesus is the victorious king. It is done. It is finished. And when Jesus entered in, all the people around them could simply say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. We love him. Wow. I think I'm the only one excited right now. I've got spit all over my arm. Well, 
Hopefully I explained that to where you did get a little bit of excitement within your belly. Thank you. Um, when I was checking out my watch, see how much, long, how much longer I have. Anybody got a roast in the oven right now? Nobody. Fantastic. Um, so, so you get this picture, right? You get this picture of Jesus is the rightful king who deserves everything. We lay things down. We lay our coats down. We lay our palm branches down. We see that Jesus is the victorious king. And we see the crowd erupting in worship. So that's the picture. When, when I was um, studying for my, for my doctorate, one of the classes I took was, was, was called African American Preaching. It's been by far the, the best class in my theological education training that I've ever been a part of. It's called African American Preaching. And the purpose of the class um, was to really examine the difference between African American preaching and, and, and white preaching. And in the class, the class was, it, was, uh, it consisted of four people, but the professor being one of them. Um, Dr. Robert Smith... African-American, another African-American student, and me and another white student, two and two. One of the best things I've ever been a part of in my life because we were brutally honest with one another. And in that class, we, we used the book, or one of the books we used to walk through, was called Preaching in Black and White. Preaching in Black and White is authored by Warren Wiersbe, some of you may know Warren Wiersbe by some of his commentaries. I will let you know I love Warren Wiersbe, um, but he's probably one of the driest preachers you'll ever hear. I mean, that's just, but God used him and uses him and uses him in his writings. Fantastic. And I, and I love Warren Wiersbe, and I use a lot of his commentaries. Uh, the other author, the other co-author was a man by the name of E.K. Bailey out of Dallas, Texas. E.K. Ba Bailey um, who's now deceased, he was probably one of the greatest orators in the 20th century. He's one of the guys that he could, he could, he could, he could sweat through his jacket. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I mean, he, he, he was passionate. And he and Warren Wiersbe were both convicted that the church needs to learn more about expository preaching, just preaching the text. Just preach the text. Let the text speak and let the text do what it tells you to do. And E.K. Bailey believed that, that, that the African-American church needed to, learn, needed to learn more about the expository preaching because, because in his own words, there was a lot of emotionalism. Warren Wiersbe was the antithesis of emotionalism. <laughs> but he stuck to the text. E.K. Bailey then had a dream to start a conference of black and white preachers to learn how to correctly exposit the Word of God. And he said this in his book, he said this, when God was passing out genius, he did not discriminate by race. Wow. Isn't that good? Well, in this book, as they dialogue with one another about the differences between black and white churches, 
it very quickly went to one of the major differences between black and white churches. In African-American churches, it is often filled with passion and emotion. And sadly for the white church, Exactly. (laughs) And these two men, black and white, came together and said, just what if? Just what if? Just what if the white church could show more emotion and passion while holding to truth? And what if the black church would, 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 would hold the truth and have that same emotion and passion in the worship? They came together. And in our text, we see, in verse 9, we see that the crowds came together. The crowds came together upholding Scripture, but with unbelievable emotion and passion. And I read that verse, verse 9, and it's just a reminder to me and it's a reminder to us that, that we do not serve a boring king. We serve the rightful king. We serve the victorious king who simply just asks of us to lay down our coats for him to lay down our palm branches for him and then to shout at the top of our lungs, to shout at the top of our lungs that that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that we need not be ashamed of who Jesus is. Oh, if there's something we can take from this message for Palm Sunday, it's this, that we would be unashamed to tell the world who Jesus Christ really is, that we would not back down That even though somebody would come after you, come after us, that we would not back down from who Jesus is. Now, I know this so many times, and I'm guilty of this, and, but I think there's some truth in it. So many times we talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us, right? Look what Jesus has done for us. That's all good, and that's all well, but we need to start getting to the moment where we say, but look at who Jesus is. Whether he did something for me or not, that's not the point, but this is who Jesus is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you remember that story? They're about to be thrown into the fire. And they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, whether or not God saves us from this fire or not, I don't know. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. Tell people about Jesus. Tell who he is. He's the rightful king. There can be no other king but King Jesus. But what about Muhammad? What about these other, or Buddha? What about these other religions? Listen, I'm not afraid of those other religions, and neither should you be. Why? Because Jesus is the rightful king. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, do you remember that? 
You remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? The whole world in Elijah's mind are against him, and they are worshiping other gods. And Elijah doesn't back down. He says, yeah, you go worship your gods. Do whatever you need to do. And I will sit back, and I will watch you. I will see you make a a fool out of yourself as you cut yourself. Do you remember that? Remember that story? And Elijah said, go ahead. I ain't worried. But you know, in the back of his mind, he's going, God, you better, you better do something. You know what I mean? Like, God, you better do this. You better do this. And you remember? And Elijah so believed in the power of God that he built the altar and then he just flooded his altar with water so that it wouldn't catch on fire. Do you remember that? And he began to pray to the Almighty God and boom! And he wiped the other gods out. It's because Elijah stood on the fact of who Jesus Christ, who God is. And God brought him through. Well, that was for free for you guys. Here's the third thing that we learned from this. Even though Jesus is the rightful king, and even though he's the victorious king, the world doesn't know this king. Look at verse number 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy, multiple prophecies, all the city was stirred, which, which in Greek, it literally means they were shaken to the core. You got to remember that at this moment, there's probably two million people in Jerusalem right now. It's Passover. It's going to be the last Passover that Jesus ever participates in in his physical body. People are expecting him to be the, the king that overthrows the government. They know that there's some other people that want to kill him. And so th- it, it, it is just, it is, it, is a, uh, it, is, it, it is combustible at that moment. And they're stirred. But look at their question. What is the question that the world is asking? Who is this? As I've read this text, like you, I, I, I know the story of Palm Sunday. I, I know the story of the triumphal entry. And sometimes it's hard to preach a text that everybody's familiar with. Are you with me? Because I see some of you sleeping. I hear you. I see you. I see you. I'm joking. I don't see you. I promise you I don't. So. Um, but as I read over this text over and over and over and one of the things I do in preparation for, the, for preaching is I just read the text over and over again just try to read it over and over again and say okay God is there something I'm missing here I get it I see yeah I get it I get it I got it here but verse 10 jumped off the page to me this week when he entered Jerusalem All the city was stirred, saying, who is this man? And I just began to think, people who were alive when Jesus was physically alive, that they could physically touch, they still didn't know. Do you get it? 
they still didn't know. So even when Jesus was still alive, it still required his followers to tell others who Jesus was. Are you with me? Even when Jesus was still alive, he still needed other people to tell who he was. Now look at verse 11. And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I read that and I thought, it's close. Are you with me? Yes, but. I believe so many times in our own evangelism, we stay at Jesus is just a prophet. And we need to tell the world who he is. That he's the rightful king and he's the victorious king. And that when he came, he came in humility on the back of a donkey. But there's a time when he's coming again. And it's not going to be on a donkey. Angel's mom and stepdad, they have two donkeys. Pancho and and mister. When we drive into her home and they're in the middle of the road, <laughs> they won't move. And they'll just look at you. Right? Jesus came in on a donkey in humility. But when he comes back the second time, it's not going to be on a donkey. It's going to be on a white horse. And he's going to come in all victory and all power. He will not be coming in humility that second time. He will come with all power and with all authority and with all glory and with all honor that he deserves. And when he comes back that second time, There will be many people who will come to the realization he's way more than a prophet. I don't want anybody. I don't want my family. I don't want the city. I don't want the state. I don't want our nation. I don't want our world to come to that moment when Jesus returns on his white horse and all of his power and all his glory and they come to the realization I missed it. We have a job to do. Do y'all know the name Robert Louis Stevenson? There's a connection between him and the Golden Isles. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the book. You may remember? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thank you very much. Very good. Um, growing up, he was a very sick kid. And I've told this story before. Growing up, he was a very sick kid. And oftentimes, he couldn't play outside, but he would watch things go on outside and one particular evening 
It was nighttime. He sat at the window, and he watched as a man, and it was pitch black outside, but he watched as a man walked down the street, and he would light the glass of the gas lamps. He's just watching this. And so Stevenson's nurse says to him, what, what are you doing? And he said this, I'm watching the man knock holes in the darkness. I think that's a beautiful picture. I think that's a beautiful picture of where we are as a people, where we are as a church, and where we are as a nation. We are very, very dark. But for such a time as this, we are living in that moment. And it's time that we begin to knock holes in the darkness. And we tell people who Jesus Christ is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we have come face to face with the reality of of who you are, how you showed us who you are, how you taught us through your word who you are, and then we look forward to the time that you're coming back again, as your word says. But Father, if there's anybody in this room this morning who thinks that you are just a prophet, Holy Spirit, would you draw them into the reality that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you willingly gave up your life, that this coming Friday on Holy Week, that you willingly gave up your life, you willingly crucified for us. And if that's you this morning, that you don't know Jesus as king, as rightful king, as victorious king, and as your savior, I pray today that you would come to Jesus, that you would bow your knee to him, surrender your life to him, and follow him as Lord and savior. If that's you this morning, we'll stand in a few moments, and if you need to make that decision, I ask you to just come forward and make that declaration known. Come talk to me. For the rest of us who who maybe have already made that decision, but we live in this dark world, I pray that you would realize that it's our responsibility to knock holes in the darkness and that you would surrender your life to making Jesus known to everybody around you. Father, thank you for loving us when we were so unlovable. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.